chance bathroom encounter with Gough Whitlam, an interview with Chrissy Hind that doesn't go to plan. These are just two of the stories you're about to hear today. Hello, thanks for your company. I'm Melanie Tate and you're on Now Hear This. If this is your first time on Now Hear This, you need to know that the storytellers you're about to hear all very bravely stood up in front of an audience to tell their true story. And if you keep listening, you'll find out how you can tell your story too. Today we're looking at stories of fame. The first is from Catherine Bendel. Well, it's uh, 1977 and uh, I'm a 26-year-old housewife living at North Ride. I've just graduated from this little university down the road called Macquarie University, which had just opened, and I'd just given birth to my first child. Now, the thing that's important about 1977, it's two years after the Whitlam government had been dismissed in 1975. And like a lot of Australians, I was really outraged about the dismissal. But then even later, there was a landslide uh, victory to the Liberals. And so Whitlam was banished from Australian politics for the time being. But in 1977, he was about to make a comeback. So I joined, in great rage, the local Labor Party at East Ride. Now, until that moment, I had never had a brush with fame. But when I joined the little branch of the Labor Party at East Ride, there were 15 members, and all of them had war stories about their different contacts in the Labor Party. There was Bruce, for example. He'd been in the Miscellaneous Workers' Union, and he told great stories about the time he'd taken on this particular person, Jim Cairns. You know, all these, all these incredible names that I'd heard about. And it was for a newbie, very naive, just brand new mum, one of the most exciting times of my life. A couple of months after I'd been a member, the election was announced and the secretary of the branch, Bev Sharp, rang me up to say there's a whole bunch of us going in on a bus and we're going to take white buckets into the Opera House because Gough Whitlam is about to uh, launch the Australian Labor Party's campaign for re-election and it's going to be held at the Opera House, and we're going in to, with these white buckets to collect money. Would you like to go? It was like an invitation backstage to a Sting concert. I was just so excited. So I head off into the city with 15 people from the, Austra- from the East Ride branch with my bucket in one hand and my baby in the other. And I couldn't get over it because Bev Sharp said to me, if you play your cards right... At some stage, you'll probably see some of these really famous people from the Australian Labor Party in the distance, and you'll get a chance to have a look at them. What I couldn't get over was the money that people were throwing into the buckets, and by the sort of half an hour, you know, with this baby in one hand, people were just chucking money in my bucket. I maybe had a couple of hundred dollars. And suddenly I got this sort of firm hand on my shoulder, and I turned around, and there was a man in a suit, and he said to me, I'd like to talk to you for a moment. And as he pulled me aside, I could see Bev looking panic-stricken, what was going on. And he explained to me that this was going to be broadcast, this this national launch, and they had a whole lot of really famous people on the stage, but they needed to have some ordinary people. (laughs) And, And because I was there with a little baby, they thought I'd be perfect, right centre, camera, so that, you know, I'd be picked up. Anyway, so with that, he takes me up in the lift and I could see all the other 15 members of the Australian Labor Party from East Ride looking as I'm going up in the lift and onto the main stage of the Sydney Opera House. And sure enough, 
There were all the luminaries, all the famous people that we've all read about in history books now were all there on stage and me with my baby. <laughs> so anyway, um, Bob, uh, Bob Hawke at that stage was the secretary of the ACTU and he was the crowd warmer. What I forgot to tell you was that the East Ride people, one of the war stories they told me was that at some stage, Gough Whitlam had actually visited the electorate while they were there. And they explained to me in very hushed and reverential terms that if I was to ever meet anyone important from the Labor Party, I was to call them by their first name. Because the Labor Party is an egalitarian party. So, if I, for example, if I was to meet Gough, it would be, hello, Gough. And the only, the only difference would be if I met Bob Hawke, I was to call him Hawkey and to buy him a schooner. Anyway... So here I am on stage and there's Bob Hawke warming the crowd up and my son, my little six-month-old son, does a shit in his nappy (laughs) that is beyond human description. I think all the mums in the room would know them as number threes. It was... It exploded. And the smell was odious and, and everyone was looking around, you know, where's that coming from? And this kid starts crying and suddenly the stage manager has this meltdown and he grabs me and he says, quickly, go off stage, change the baby and come back. We really need you on stage. (laughs) Meanwhile, Bob Hawke's out the front warming the crowd up. There's probably about 2,000 people in in the auditorium. So I go backstage and I'm shunted into this room. Oh, I haven't even got to the crunch of it. Anyway, so I'm shunted into this room and I've got Adam on the table. I've pulled off his nappy and I'm scraping the poo off him when suddenly I hear a toilet flush behind me and I hear a zipper going up on a pair of men's trousers and then I hear the voice. What's going on here? And I turn round and there's Gough Whitlam. So what do I do as a Labor Party newbie, a good Catholic girl? I genuflect. (laughs) I genuflect. And I say, good morning, Mr. Whitlam. Whatever happened to good morning, golf, all gone. He was so extraordinary. He looked at my name badge and he saw that my surname at that stage was Balog, which he recognised immediately as being Hungarian. So in Hungarian, he said to me, Kersenom, Mrs. Balog, and then asked me in Hungarian if I spoke Hungarian. We then went on to have this extraordinary conversation about my husband, about the invasion of Budapest in 1956, blah, 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 blah. And in the meantime, this young red-headed bloke came in, really agitated, really bright, bright red hair. It was Kerry O'Brien. He was only about 19 then. And he was Gough Whitlam's press secretary. And he goes, Gough, quick, we've got to get on stage. So Gough Whitlam turns to me and bids me farewell in Hungarian. And, you know, off he goes. So I'm back on the stage. And by this stage, you could see the East Ride people were, like, looking at me like this. Anyway, the end of the story was, at the end of the speech, Gough Whitlam finishes and, you know, he was just magnificent. Men and women of Australia, you know, and just 2,000 people just erupted. I was so excited, I thought my heart would burst. And, of course, it was before people had mobile phones, so there was no one I could tell. Nobody, Nobody would know that I was on stage. But as I was leaving, 
Gough Whitlam came up to me and he said to me, Kirsten, I'm Mrs. Ballock, which is goodbye in Hungarian, and he said to me, now, just just do this one thing for me. And I said, what is it? He said, just make sure you tell those East Ride people that I'm going to come visit them one day. And that's my end. Catherine Bendel told that story at the Now Hear This Storytelling Slam in Sydney in late August. We have slams planned for Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Canberra. So do go and check out our website if you fancy telling a story. You're on RN's Now Hear This. I'm Melanie Tate. Coming up every weekday morning here on RN, Fran Kelly wakes us up with stories from all around the world. And in a few minutes' time, you'll hear a personal story from Fran of a brush with fame she expected would be fantastic, but in reality was another matter. First, here's a story from Tom Hadley. Many of you might know that I was born in a small place called Pontypridd in South Wales. The Pont actually stands for for Pont, and it was a bridge, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in French or <laughs> Welsh or whatever. And, um, um, and one of the reasons it's called Pont is because there was a famous bridge there. Uh, it's still there. Uh, at the time, it was the longest single arch stone bridge uh, in Europe for a, for a few hundred years, in fact. But that's not really why I want to speak tonight. Uh, uh, Pont de Pontypridd was famous for a number of other things. The Welsh national anthem, My hen lad van adai an anoilimi, was written there. And, um, and a number of other famous people came from there. You may not remember these people. But they were, there was a, an opera singer called Geraint Evans. And uh, he was the Bryn Turville of the times, you know. Um, none of you would have heard of him. But there were a few other famous people that came from that town. And one of them that springs to mind quite readily is Sir Tom Jones, the, uh, the pop singer. Oh, yes, that's right. In fact, um, he used to swim alongside me in the local swimming pool before he became Tom Jones. So that was a pretty close brush with fame, I have to say. Um, at that time, he was a member of a, of a band called uh, Tommy Escort and the Squires. They sort of played in the local pub, he in leathers doing Elvis covers and things like that. And a very good friend of mine, uh, school friend, Chris, um, actually played drums in Tom's um, uh, band uh, in the local pub in the New Inn. And um, uh, in those days... If you were going to make a pop record, you didn't have sort of Triple J or anything like that. What you had in the UK was the pirate radio stations. Some of you may have seen the movie The, the Boat That Rocks. That was a pirate radio station. And that's how people like Tom Jones actually made it to the big time. So he made it with, uh, with another song, which I'll sing you a slight a little bit of it too. It's not unusual to be loved. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I didn't make it, he did. Um, <laughs> so, um, and, um, and uh, so Tom was, had a hit with It's Not Unusual. And of course he was going to make it in the big time in London. And he approached uh, my school friend Chris to say, would you come and play drums with me? And um, Chris, being a little conservative young man, came to his best friend and he said, what do you think I should do, Tom? He said, um, do you think I should... Um, go and play drums with Tom or go in the Air Force. 
And I said, oh, you, you don't know how long he's going to last. I said, I said, you know, I said, you might go up there and in a couple of months' time, you, you, might, you might be gone, you know. Um, so join the Air Force. <laughs> so anyway, Chris, <laughs> Chris, Chris Slade, as his stage name is, <laughs> chose not to uh, listen to his good friend's advice and did, in fact, go and play drums with Tom. Um, up in London. But of course, eventually Tom did dispensed with a, a backing trio and used session bands and orchestras and you name it. So Chris, in fact, did, didn't have a job with him anymore. However, he'd become known, and so um, Manfred Mann's Earth Band picked him up, and, um, and eventually he set up a, a drumming school, Chris, the Chris Slade Drumming School, and the last I heard of him was uh, he'd been playing with ACDC, so uh, it's a pretty good job that he didn't take my advice, otherwise he would have never achieved that fame. <laughs> Tom Hadley with that story. Tom told that story at the most recent Now Hear This Storytelling Slam in Sydney. The theme was fame, as you might have guessed. Today we're hearing stories of fame, and this next story is from a voice you might be familiar with as an RN listener. Usually she's waking us up, but today, a personal story from Fran Kelly. Thank you. People call me Newshound. People call me a terrier. She's like a terrier, she's like a dog at a bone. People call me a Labour stooge. People call me a Liberal rat. People call me all sorts of things. My inbox every single morning is full of names. But it doesn't mean anything to me because I know who I am. I am a rock chick. <laughs> it's true, I'd rather be a rock star, but I didn't have the talent for that. So rock chick will have to do. And at least in the life I live, I get to talk to rock stars. I get to talk to my rock idols. And you just never know what could come of that. That's what propels me every single time. So, Joan Jett, it's been a pleasure to have you on Radio National Breakfast. Hey, Joan, do you want to go for a drink later? Maybe we could be friends. Patty Smith, thanks so much for joining us on Breakfast. Now, Patty, tell me what it was like back in the 70s. Come back to my place, we can shoot the breeze. Of course, it doesn't happen, but you can always dream. I never stop hoping. And there's endless rock idols to interview. Chrissy Amphlett, Sinead O'Connor, Katie Lang, Susie Quattro. Susie Quattro was my first rock idol. It was the first poster I had on my wall. I used to dress like Susie Quattro. I used to sing like Susie Quattro, or so I thought. I used to know all the lyrics to Devilgate Drive, that sort of thing. Sometimes it doesn't pay to meet your idols. Susie Quattro was a huge disappointment. She was vanilla. And she didn't like it when I pointed that out on radio. And she didn't like it so much. In fact, that trip down, the elevator trip down after the interview, you'd walk someone out, you know, you've done the pre-record, you walk them down and show them out, frosty. I've never had such a frosty atmosphere in an elevator. But that didn't matter because by then I'd read the story and I was over, Susie Quattro. <laughs> There's one rock star, rock chick, that stands out amongst rock chicks, and I don't know, I'm sure a lot of you in the room will agree, it is Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders. Anyone here know Chrissy Hind? Anyone here love Chrissy Hind? Come on. The Pretenders, if you don't know, are a band from the, I think the late 70s was Brass in Pocket and then through the 80s. Huge, huge. And uh, she's still singing with The Pretenders. 
she is the ultimate for me. So imagine a moment in a young girl's life when she's in London, she picks up the phone, I was the European correspondent, pick up the phone, it's the Sydney producer from the 7.30 report, say, hi Fran, hi Kwok, hey, could you do a pick up for us? A pick up is when you're doing an interview for someone else's package. It was gonna be packaged by, Mark Bannon was doing a piece called Female Rock Legends that in a couple of nights time on the 7.30 report. I said, oh yeah, sure, what, who is it, when? It's Chrissy Hines, you know Chrissy Hines? I went, <laughs> do I know Chrissy Hines? I've seen The Pretender seven times, I know all the lyrics, I have all the CDs. Sure, Quack, no problem, I can fit that in. Um, so the next two days were a little fraught and I was Googling and I was writing questions and I was working out what I was gonna wear and I had the haircut and you know, the whole thing. And then Mark had some questions that he wanted me to ask. Of course, it was his story, not mine. He'd already interviewed Bonnie Raitt, so we arrive at the interview, and I've got Mark's questions and my questions, and Chrissy Hine walks in, glasses, yellow jackets, scowly face, you know, doesn't really say anything. We sit down, before the cameras are rolling, she said, I hate doing this, I really hate doing this, this is why I'm getting out of the business. Getting out of the business? I'm moving to Brazil, I'm never gonna record again. I hate doing it, I hate interviews like this. I really hate this, they're making me do this one. I hate it. <laughs> dying inside and um, it was worse than that actually I was feeling a little uncomfortable already I got dressed that morning and I put on the jeans and I put on the boots and I put on the leather jacket and my girlfriend said uh uh not the leather jacket I said why she said Chrissy Hines she's an animal liberationist like she's a mad rabid petter animal she's gone to jail for it so I took off the leather jacket I thought good tip and uh, but as soon as she walked in we sat down she goes are they leather boots and I'm like the boots I forgot the boots so we got off on the wrong foot anyway and then she just told me how she hates doing interviews like this and she was only doing it under suffrage so okay she's going to do it that's a start Camera's rolling. I've got the first question. I know Mark had asked Bonnie Ray. The first question he wanted to kick off with was, so, um, you know, tell me in a few words how you describe yourself. And Bonnie Ray had said, I'm a survivor. I'm feisty. I'm strong and independent. I'm full of mischief and I know what I'm doing. What a great answer. What a great answer from a rock legend. So, Chrissy Hine, if I asked you to tell me, if you use a few words to describe yourself, I wouldn't use a few words to describe myself. Okay, well, what, what would you say? I wouldn't describe myself. Why would I describe myself? What, like an advert or something? <laughs> okay, so that was a bad start, so I thought I'd take it to another tangent. So, okay, tell me what it's like being a 52-year-old woman in the rock and roll business. Well, she didn't like that either. <laughs> she said, I don't know what you mean. Okay, well, you know, you've been in the rock business a long time and it's a bit of a youth world and you're a survivor. You're a mature woman, she didn't like that, in the rock and roll business, you know. Is that tough? No. I'm just doing what I always do. And the thing you've got to understand for a pickup interview is you need long answers because Mark needs to cut the answer out and put it in his piece. So three words don't really work. So I keep plugging away, you know, I'm so eager. So, well... You know, do you feel like in all this time you're a role model for women in the rock? I don't like women. I don't like men. I don't like gender. I just like people. People always bring the feminist thing in. I'm not, I'm not a feminist. I said, well, why aren't you a feminist? You're an animal liberationist. Why aren't you a feminist? I'm not a feminist because a feminist told me once I'm not a feminist. So, okay. Okay, so 
And then I'm sitting there trying to regroup. And all of a sudden, there's a bit of noise outside. It's a bit distracting, but, you know, it's the middle of London, a bit of noise. She stands up, strides across the room, doesn't say anything to us. The cameras are rolling. Opens the door, screams into the corridor, could you keep it down out there? We're trying to do a television interview in here. And she strides back, sits down and goes, so, how am I doing? I'm trying really hard. And I think, you're doing really badly and you're not even trying. And the sort of, the, the, the fan inside me is just really shriveling up. But I say, you're doing great, Chrissy. If we could just have the answers a little longer. Okay, she said, and she sort of acts as though she's going to do something like that. So I say, I try again. In the 80s, the pretenders were huge. You played to full stadiums, you played to rock festivals, you were the headline act. The other day I saw you at Shepherd's Bush in a pub with three or four hundred people. <laughs> what was I thinking? How does that feel? Well, clearly it didn't feel too good because she gave me a really filthy look. And I said, you know, are you surprised that people are still coming to see you after 30 years? It's sort of like the heart said fan, the head said, you know, news hound, and I was going about it all the wrong way. To be honest, I don't think it would have mattered how I went about it. But so we went on and on like this for a while. And then I said, okay, I'll try another tack. Chrissy Hine, I read somewhere that you said that domesticity doesn't sell. And she said, well, I didn't say that. It's a good line, but I didn't say it. I said, okay. Well, I also read, and I st she said, that's the problem with interviews, like this. People go to the internet, they look up what you've said, and then they come back and try and get you to say it again. It's boring. It's boring, she said. And I'm thinking, this is the rock star I love, and she's just called me boring. This is possibly the worst moment of my journalistic Aww. rock and roll career. I'm boring. I thought we'd better wrap it up. So I try one last time. I have to get a grab for Mark because by now the groupie's completely given up. That's dead. And I'm thinking all I can salvage is something from my journalistic integrity. I've got to get Mark a grab for the piece. So I try one more time. I said, Chrissy Hine, you've got two daughters. What would you be telling them? Would you be recommending them a life on the stage? Well, she was like a changed woman. She brightened up, she sat up, she said, Absolutely. Pick up your pencils, girls, and start writing. It's a great job. It's lots of fun. People pay you for doing something you love to do. Why wouldn't you go for it? I breathed a sigh of relief. At last I got more than three words. She was smiling. I said, Chrissy Hine, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Normally, you know, like I'd come prepped for this interview. I was a little overexcited, as you can tell. I had a bag full of CDs I was going to get signed, that kind of thing. You know, just a little keen. I thought now's not the time. So I didn't try and shake a hand and be a friend. I didn't even drag out the CDs to be signed. I just thought, let's, you know, cut it now. You know, the fan was dead. The fan was slaughtered on the floor. I said, Chrissy Hine, that's great. Thanks so much, Chrissy. And thought she'd walk out the door. Well, guess what Chrissy Hine did? She stands up. She reaches into a bag. She pulls out her camera. She comes over. She puts her arm around me, hands her camera to the camera and says, hey, take our photo. Let's get a photo together. And then she hangs around and wants to chat. It was like such... It was like she wanted to be my friend. It was like so confusing. Anyway, she went her way. I went my way. We weren't friends. And as I say, the fan inside was really pretty much dead and buried. But... It was just an interview. She's a rock star. Who am I? I'm nothing. So I went back to my life. The lesson from this, in case you're wondering, is just don't ever try and interview your idol. That's the lesson. It's a huge disappointment. But 
I still think she plays great rock and roll. So she was in Sydney a couple of years ago, and I went out to see her at the Enmore Theatre. She's 59 by now, okay? She's 59. She was sensational. She was brilliant. The band was hot. She was hot. She was grouchy. She was stroppy. She had attitude. Her songs are sensational. She was great. Fantastic. I was so overwhelmed by the whole experience. The whole thing came back to me. I went, and I'm sure you can guess this, I went running down the side alley of the Enmore Theatre to wait backstage for Chrissy Hyde, just for another serve. I waited and I waited and I waited and she didn't come. What was I hoping? What was I hoping at that moment? I think I was hoping that she'd come out that door and she'd go, Hey Fran, I haven't seen you since London, why don't we go out for a drink? But it didn't happen and I still love Chrissy Hyde. Fran Kelly with that story. Fran told that story earlier this year at the Sydney Writers' Festival and the theme for that afternoon of stories was Lost the Plot. That's all there is today on Now Hear This. The stories you heard were recorded by Martin Peralta and Louis Mitchell, sound engineering on today's episode by Martin Peralta. Next week, stories of being busted or caught out. I hope you have a terrific week and manage to get a story or two out of it. (laughs) 